This is Elizabeth Thicken, and I invite you to study the Bible with me. You'll hear lectures from my women's Bible studies that I teach at my church. I've written in-depth studies on seven books of the Bible. They're available on Amazon. There's much more information on my website, elizabeththicken.com. And you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Let's dig into God's Word together now, knowing that His message of salvation has been spoken to us by His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we'll trust that the Holy Spirit will teach us the things of God. I'm so excited to share Psalm 16 in this episode with you. It's great to be here. It, it is fun. It is wonderful to be with ladies regularly and to see you. And how much more wonderful it is to be in the book of Psalms. I am so happy in the book of Psalms. It is meaningful. It is encouraging. I'm meditating on the verses that we have been meditating on. We've, as you study, you're meditating on them. That's a good thing. So I am ready to get started, and I will be talking about Psalm 16 today. How do you define confidence? Webster's Dictionary, which I don't normally send you to, but I want you to hear what they say. Webster says confidence is a trusting or reliance, an assurance of mind or firm belief in the integrity, stability, or veracity of another or in the truth of a fact, the reality of a fact. They also say that it could be trust or reliance on one's own abilities, belief in one's own competency. So you have confidence in yourself. Webster says it's safety or assurance of safety and security. Wikipedia says confidence is generally described as a, cert, as a state of being certain that either the hypothesis or prediction is correct or that a chosen course of action is the best or most effective given the circumstances. I like this description that I found about confidence, though. It's a fun one. Confidence is like going after Moby Dick in a rowboat with a harpoon and a jar of tartar sauce. You know you're gonna get him. But more important than how you define confidence is what you actually place your confidence in. That should come as no surprise to you. In the Psalm that we're gonna look at today, we're gonna see David's extreme confidence placed in the only one who can truly be trusted. So please turn to Psalm 16 if you're not already there, if you can. And if you can turn to it in your Bible or turn to it in your Bible app and follow along as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. 
The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. I wonder, is this a familiar psalm to you in its entirety, the whole psalm? The last verse is one that I had heard and really like that last verse a lot. I'd heard it many times. But before I began studying the book of Psalms in an in-depth way, this psalm as a whole was pretty unfamiliar to me. It is a very special psalm for many reasons, and I want to share what I've learned with you so you can add it to your bouquet of special psalms. I don't have a PowerPoint or fill in the blanks, but we do have a simple three-point alliterated outline today as we're going to walk through this psalm. We're going to look at the plea, the perspective, and the promise. But before we get to those main points, there is a little word, a strange word in the heading, the title of this psalm, and no one knows the meaning of it. So we're going to try to figure that out. Huh. We're not going to figure it out, but we're going to talk about what people think it might mean. This is a mictum of David. Most Bibles leave the actual Hebrew word in the heading since there is not a consensus on what it means. It only shows up in Psalm 16 and Psalms 56 through 60. So it's an uncommon heading. Some scholars think that the word mictum means gold and that this is a golden psalm. It's just that special. And this is what Charles Spurgeon chose as the meaning of mictum, and he calls Psalm 16 the golden psalm. Some scholars think that the word mictum means to cover, and that it has something to do with atonement and forgiveness of sins. Those are not the possibilities that most modern commentators accept. They prefer the idea of it being an inscription. They think that there would have been a stone left standing that was engraved or inscribed with the words of this psalm, and that stone was left at the temple as an offering. So a memorial, something engraved. There's not any evidence that that was a practice in Israel, though, so I'm not so sure about that meaning. We're left to leave the word mictum in an unknown category, and the good news is that it does not affect the interpretation of this psalm. I've been to a Bible exhibit, and I have seen many Bibles that were created throughout history, and one of them that caught my attention was a Bible that was printed with gold ink. So each page on one side of the page had the scripture printed, and I, I love that because to me it shows the preciousness, the value of the Word of God. Someone was willing to pay for that. So I've combined all the meanings of mictum and I have Psalm 16 that I inscribed on this sign with gold ink because it is a precious, very special psalm. 
So what's expressed? First of all, we see a plea found in verse 1. It's short and sweet. David says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Preserve me. The Hebrew meaning of that phrase is to watch over me, keep me, guard me. And David says, preserve me, O God. The Hebrew word for God that is used here, the name is El, E-L. This means the almighty God, the true God of Israel. It's surprising to see the name L used this early in the Psalms in book one. We will see it used many times and often when we get later in another section of the book of Psalms. But this name used now does help and emphasize a distinguishing of El, the one true God, the true God of Israel from other gods, pagan gods, false gods which are mentioned in Psalm 16. So David says, preserve me, O God, almighty God, in you I take refuge. You'll remember from Psalm 2, I hope, that all those who seek refuge in the Lord are blessed. And by the time we get to the end of Psalm 16, we see a happy ending. We see the blessing of the one who's seeking refuge. So that's the plea. It's short and to the point. One commentator described it as a sigh, expressing everything in a few words. And we can learn our first lesson from this verse. Our prayers to God do not have to be fancy. They can be short. They can be a sigh. They can be a word. Just your simple request. Help me. I need you. Keep me. We also can see that David gives God a reason in his request. He's showing his faith and his anticipation. For in you I take refuge. So he's expressing his need. He needs refuge. And he knows God will give him refuge. So that's the plea. Let's look at the perspective. And that's seen in verses 2 through 6. And I want to look at part 1 and part 2 of the perspective. Part 1 in verses 2 and 3 is described by every commentator that I read regarding Psalm 16. Psalm 2, I'm sorry, verse 2 and 3 is the most difficult section of this psalm to interpret, to translate. What is it really saying here? I read to you from the NAS and the NIV and the New King James all translate the words about the same way. There are three words in Hebrew, though, that can be translated differently than we have seen. Verse 2 says, I said. In English, that's what it says. But it's literally in the Hebrew, you said. As if you're standing talking to one person. You said. And in the Hebrew, the word is second person feminine singular. And then in verse 3, the words in my translation, saints and majestic ones, are both expressions which can be used to designate foreign gods or pagan deities. So, what is David referring to when he's quoting these people? I've studied this section as best as I know how, looking at the Hebrew, looking at commentators, and I'm going to share with you what makes the most sense to me when you put verse 2, 3, and 4 together and you translate them literally, they would read like this, and this is how I have it on the sign. Verse 2, you have said to the Lord, 
You are my Lord, I have no good beside you. And you have said to the holy ones, the deities in the land, they are my majestic ones, they're my gods, in whom is all my delight. Do you see a problem here? There's a conflict, because if that is accurate, David is describing his perspective of the people around him, his observation is that they are saying to Yahweh, I trust you. And they are also saying to the foreign gods around them, I trust you too. The gods of the Philistines, Baal, Dagon, Ashtoreth, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of all those nations around them, I, I trust them too. If that interpretation is accurate, then verse 4 makes sense because it says the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. He's saying you're going to have sorrows because you're adding a God who's not really God. David recognizes that El, the true God of Israel, is the one God in whom to trust. Turning to anyone or anything else is going to bring sorrow, trouble, destruction upon their life or upon our life. No matter how the commentators translate verse 2 and 3, the difficult verses, they all make the same conclusion about David observing people worshiping the Lord plus other gods. So that's a problem going on here. That's what David is seeing, and he's calling it out. He's seeing idolatry. He's seeing polytheism. The ESV says verse 4 this way. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And running after other gods was a part of the history of Israel. When they were in Egypt, they worshipped the gods of the Egyptians. When they were in the wilderness, they worshipped the golden calf and other gods. And then when they came into the promised land, during the times of judges, during the times of the kings, they were idolatrous. They worshipped other gods until the time of their exile. David's perspective is that this is wrong. The people around them might think that they've got double protection, but that's no good because of the first commandment. And let me remind you what Exodus 20, 2 through 4 says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You cannot worship God and Baal because you're not really truly worshiping God if you're worshiping something in addition to God. So you can't worship God and Buddha. You can't worship God and the universe. You can't worship God and your bank account or your career or your doctor. You can't worship God and yourself. That's usually the biggest idol that we have to realize that we are worshiping. David's perspective should prompt us to consider what are we putting our trust in in addition to the Lord? Do we have a backup plan in case God doesn't come through? Are you hedging your bets? 
Do you have a safety net? So be careful about running after other gods that are probably not named Baal or Dagon, but they might be named best friend or husband or mom or your pastor. Watch out for idolatry anywhere. I check myself. I ask myself, what am I being tempted to put my trust in, in addition to the Lord? And sometimes it's not out there. It's in here. It might be my own opinion. It might be my way. Or even just wanting to have an optimistic outlook and say, oh, everything's going to be okay. It's just going to be okay. Who am I to declare that? I want to be careful to trust God and trust Him alone to preserve me, no matter what. Well, now we're going to look at David's perspective, part two. This is in verses four through six. He says, I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. So David recognized that those around him are paying homage to Yahweh and false gods. And he says, I will not do that. He declares, I will not get involved in pagan worship practices. He pledges not to take their names on his lips. Lifting up a cup of blood was a part of the pagan worship practice. It showed allegiance and commitment to that foreign god that you were worshiping. David says he'll have nothing to do with it. On the contrary, he declares that the Lord is his portion, his cup. And David declares that the, the Lord has been good to him. I don't know how well you can see, but I have highlighted and emphasized the Lord's name in this inscription. The Lord has been faithful to David. He says the pleasant places have been given to him. These are the plots of land that were given to his family. David knows what land was given to the tribe of Judah. So now we'll consider the promises. Based on the Lord's faithfulness to him, David considers the promises that he has in the Lord. We're going to see his hope. And it's at this point in the psalm that we see the incredible confidence that David has. Confidence that's based on his relationship with the Lord. Confidence in the face of death. David says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. The Lord has counseled him. The Lord has spoken to him. How did he do that? How did David know what the Lord said? It's because he read the Torah. First five books of the Bible, the king was to read the Torah and to write it for himself as well. Deuteronomy 30, 14 says, The word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. So David read the Torah often enough that it could come back to his mind, could come to his thoughts. And verse 7 emphasizes the counsel of the Lord that comes at night, night when we're in the dark, alone, it's scarier at night. We need the word of the Lord in the dark times. 
it's very precious to wake up in the middle of the night and remember the word of Lord, the word of the Lord, when we have been frightened by a dream or a noise or a difficult situation that's going on. And sometimes you may need to really work to focus on the truth of the word of the Lord rather than let the problem or the scary thing or just your thoughts run away with you. So, so grab hold <laughs> and let it take hold of you. Let the truth of the word of the Lord take hold of you. David goes on in verse 8, and he says, It's not only at night that he knows the presence of the Lord and his counsel, but he knows the Lord is with him continually. Because the Lord is at his right hand, he will not be shaken. That's one of the key phrases that helps us grasp the theme of this psalm. So where does that confidence come from that David has? We didn't study Psalms 13 um, and 15. Well, we did study 15 in depth. We didn't study 13 in depth, but there is a statement in Psalm 13, verse 3. David prays that the Lord will intervene in his trials and save his life. And we see confidence expressed there. Psalm 13, 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Then in that verse we see David's confidence come from his trust in the loving kindness of the Lord. God promised it. And he will keep his promise. In Psalm 15, 5, David declared, He who does these things will never be shaken. He who does what things? Well, that's what we studied and we saw listed out in Psalm 15. These are the things that a righteous person does that give him entrance into the presence of God. And they're done by faith. And then in Psalm 16, 8, David says, because the Lord is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So what I've traced here is Psalm 13, 15, and 16, where David is putting his confidence so that he will not be shaken. Psalm 13, it's in the faithfulness of the Lord. Psalm 15, it's because he is living a righteous life. And in Psalm 16, the very presence of the Lord gives David extreme confidence that he will not be shaken. I want to express that same confidence, don't you? I will not be shaken. I want to say that. That sounds good. It is good. What does that phrase mean? In the Hebrew, the verb means to totter, to shake, to slip. Well, we don't want that. It's an expression, a figure of speech to indicate uncertainty. But David says, I will not be shaken. So he's expressing confidence that the Lord is his refuge and he has certainty. He's expressing confidence. The Lord is at his right hand. He's secure no matter what. And the impact of that promise causes David to say, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David expresses confidence and joy that the Lord is going to keep him from dying physically at that time. Each of, 
Each of these lines reflects the anticipation of continuing to live out his life on earth at that time. Even though David's life is being threatened, which it was many times, David had confidence in the Lord and in no other God that the Lord was his refuge, his shelter, his safety. David had confidence that the Lord was going to save his life at that time and keep him from going to Sheol, which is the grave. He wouldn't be put in a grave and decay yet. That made his heart glad and rejoice. He would live through the trial and have abundant life that God had planned for him to have. We need to look at that and think about the timing of our death and trusting God for the timing of our death. We do just trust God for the timing of our death. And I love the way Stonewall Jackson, a general during the Civil War, expressed his understanding of this. He said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready, no matter when it may overtake me. And I didn't put this in my notes, but it's just come to my mind. I, I watched my mother know that her days were going to end. She was ready for whenever the time would come. And in the last two weeks of her life, we, we laughed when she said, I'm about to check out of here. And about, let's see, I can't count, but about five days before she actually died, she wrote me, I am going to die tonight. And my son was on the way with his family to visit her. And I read the note and she said, I'm going to die tonight. And I laughed at her and I said, no, you're not. Will's on his way. <laughs> we'll talk about this tomorrow. But I mention it because she faced death knowing that she would be with the Lord. And she was not expressing fear. And we did not see fear at all during that time as the end was drawing near. She let us know that she, she was checking out real soon. And she was right. We should have listened more closely to what she told us. All right, back to David. Because he understood he would live to see another day. He said, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. David rejoiced that in his life on earth, he would walk along the path of life, the way of the righteous. And as he did that, he would experience the presence of the Lord and the joy that would come from an intimate relationship with him. David knew that as he stayed at the Lord's right hand, the Lord would be continually with him and he would enjoy pleasures forever. So this is a psalm of great confidence. It began with a plea. It included the right perspective and remembered the promises of God. All of that led David to peace and joy. This confidence in the face of death that David experienced gives us insight into the same confidence that Jesus would have had as he faced his death. A portion of this psalm is actually quoted in reference to Jesus and his resurrection. It's quoted in Acts 2, 22 through 32, and I want to read this passage to you. 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, and now we have a big quote from Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This continuing in the speech that was being given in Acts. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding this patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. David had faced death and rose up in confidence against the danger of death. Jesus faced death with confidence in the Lord and rose up from the actual stronghold of death. God did not abandon David at the time of the psalm, and he didn't abandon Jesus in the grave at the time of his death. God resurrected him from the grave, and Jesus' body did not experience decay. Jesus' resurrection, you know how big a deal that is. Our lives depend on it. Our eternal lives depend on Jesus' resurrection from the grave. That's a miracle. That's fascinating. But there's this other thing. His body did not experience decay. And if you ponder that, that is also a fascinating miracle because a body dies. It goes through a process. And once it dies, it continues a decaying process. And Jesus' body did not decay. It's just fascinating. But the really good news is that the resurrection is real and it makes a difference in our lives. Hebrews 12.2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I think there must have been many aspects of joy that were set before Jesus that helped him endure the cross. We can see one of the joys in Psalm 16. Jesus knew that God would not abandon him. He knew that God would raise him from the dead and that he would experience fullness of joy in the presence of God once again. I want to tell you, I keep hearing myself say, Jesus was raised from the dead. God raised him from the dead. Jesus, and I know you know this, but some people don't believe it. Some people think Jesus was a man and he died and he was not raised to life. So as I'm hearing myself say it over and over again, it's a big deal, and we need to say it and declare it and know how critically important it is. 
Now, I've mentioned previously that there's a big picture in the book of Psalms. And when you look at the Psalms in the order that they're given to us, we're told a story. What have we seen so far? Let me highlight a couple of things. Psalm 2 tells us that the Son of God is king and we're to take refuge in him. Psalm 8 tells us that the Son of Man is crowned with glory and honor. And we saw from Hebrews that that glory and honor was given because of the death that Jesus died. So Jesus is the Son of Man who is crowned with glory and honor because of his death. And now we have Psalm 16 that tells us that the Holy One was resurrected from the grave. So you see the gospel there, right? King Jesus, the Son of God, became the Son of Man who died but was raised to life to save us from eternal death. What hope, what confidence we can have from Psalm 16. No matter what our circumstance, we can make our plea to God and declare our trust in Him alone. And when we have the right perspective and we listen to His counsel, we will know His faithfulness and promises to us. And when we seek refuge in Him, He will not allow us to be shaken. The truths in this psalm and all of Scripture teach us that in Christ we have eternal security. Our future is guaranteed. Our lives are in God's hands because Jesus' death and resurrection were in God's hands. We too can anticipate that we will not be abandoned in the grave, but will be resurrected to enjoy pleasures at the Lord's right hand forevermore. Just to make sure that you take this psalm personally, I've given you an exercise to follow David's example. This is on the back of your handout. So let me just draw attention to that here. I want you to consider some questions and fill in the blanks, and you can do this now or later or both. But what is your prayer? What do you say to God? Help me, O God, for in you I take refuge. What are others around you placing their trust in? What do you see? I see others relying on, fill in the blank. And what will you pledge not to do? Make a statement, I will not. And then consider the question, how has God been faithful to you? Think of what God has done in your life or what you've seen him do in someone else's life or what you know he has done that's recorded on the pages of scripture. Oh Lord, you've been good to me. You have done this. Now, what will you trust the Lord to do for you? Right now, Lord, I praise you and trust that you will. What are you asking him to do? What has he told you he will do? And then what joys do you anticipate? Your presence, Lord, gives me great joy and I will find pleasure in fill in the blank. Base your answers on the truths of scripture. So that's a practice um, an exercise in applying Psalm 16 to your prayer life and your thought processes. I hope that Psalm 16 will become a special golden psalm to you. Let's pray. Lord God, Almighty God, the one true God, you are the only God, and we do praise you and worship you. We worship you alone, and we want to know you and worship you 
as you are in truth, as you have revealed yourself to us. Jesus, we praise you for coming to the earth as a man and dying on our, uh, in our place. And we ask you to help us be alert to the things of the world that would distract us and um, try to get our attention and our worship. Help us to recognize these temptations in our lives and put them away and keep our eyes on you and keep our heart devoted to you. And we thank you that you are our God who knows us and you hear us and you've told us to come to you and to seek refuge in you and to find our shelter, our security in you. We thank you for the way that you work in our lives and your great faithfulness, your wonderful loving kindness. So thank you for holding us and keeping us and guarding us and preserving us. We love you, Lord, our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's all for today. I am Elizabeth Ficken. Thanks for studying the Bible with me.